You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 5. And we'll read together verses 19 through 23, and then we will pray together. Actually, we'll, we'll pick it up, verse 18, 18 through 23. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Let's pray together. Our blessed God, we know that we are dependent upon you for any understanding that we can have in your word. Our eyes are dim and our hearts are dull to understand and our temptation is to forget immediately the things that you show us. And so we confess to you our frailty and our need and we pray that you would be pleased to drill these things down deep into our hearts that we might have this morning ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would be quick to understand and obey your word. O Spirit of God, be our teacher. And, O Lord, may your word be our guide. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, last week, we, I sort of laid the foundation for today's message in talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And Thomas said to me afterwards, he said, I had to attend this church for four years before I finally heard you give a topical message. And uh, that's kind of what last week's was, somewhat of a topical message, in, in which case, if you thought that was topical, I want to immediately apologize for it. It was actually the introduction for today's message, but it was just such a long introduction that we didn't have time to actually get to John 5.19, which is where we're picking it up. We laid the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity for the purpose of making sure that we have in our mind's eye and in our hearts, as best as we feeble, weak, finite, limited creatures are able to, a right understanding of who God is and how God exists and how God works in his essential nature and his being. And we saw that the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is that within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And unless you have that down in your head and in your mind, and unless you are able to affirm that, then there are going to be whole passages of Scripture that will make no sense to you whatsoever. You will read entire chapters that just will be lost entirely on you unless you are, have some sort of a framework to put those into and some sort of a working knowledge of, of how it is that Jesus is God but not the Father. And so our doctrine of the Trinity helps us to delineate that, that Jesus is God, fully God, but He is not the Father and He is not the Spirit. There are three persons who are the one God. And all three persons can say, I am God, and be fully right in saying so and make that, and that is a true statement for them. But no person of the Trinity could say, other than the Father, I am the Father. The Son could never say that. And the Spirit could never say, I am the Father. 
And likewise, the Father could never say, I am the Spirit, or I am the Son. And the Son, which one did, well, you get the point. The other person, whichever one it is that I've forgotten, the first two, can never say, I am the other two persons. Because they are all separate and distinct persons. And yet they work, those distinctly, they work coordinately with one another in how they affect salvation. One of the passages that will make no sense to you whatsoever, if you do not have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, is John chapter 5. As we read through these these words, there's going to be no, there's going to be nothing in your head that makes you, allows you to make sense of this unless you have a working understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. But once you kind of get that framework in place, then we can work our way through John chapter 5, beginning at verse 19, and begin to understand what is going on there. The context, of course, is immediately, the immediate context, and I don't want you to forget this. Jesus is saying what he says in verses 19 through 47. He's saying what he says in response to the persecution of the Jews. The Jews persecuted him in response to him saying, the Father has been working until now, and I myself also am working. So all that God does, I do. Jesus said that in response to their persecution in verse 16, and they were persecuting him in response to healing on the Sabbath because they thought he was violating the Sabbath. So remember, all of John 5 goes together. The healing gave brought, um, the healing raised the persecution or the controversy. The controversy itself sparks this discourse that Jesus gives beginning in verse 19. And this is what we call the divine son discourse. This is the third discourse in the Gospel of John. You remember the first one was John chapter 3. We call that the new birth discourse. The second one was John chapter 4, the living water discourse. This is now the third discourse or extended teaching by Jesus. And it's called the divine son discourse because at no place anywhere else in any of the Gospels do we have Jesus giving such a long, drawn-out explanation of his divine sonship. Now there's going to be something that we are going to run into as we begin to work our way through John chapter 5. And I, I want to sort of lay this out at the beginning. We are going to find very quickly that what is before us in John chapter 5 is one of the deepest, most profound, and most difficult chapters of Scripture to understand. Simply because it is Jesus describing His nature and the nature of the Father and how they are together the one God, with the Spirit, of course, though the Spirit's not mentioned in John chapter 5, and yet they are distinct persons. So we are getting a glimpse at the nature of God. And when we do that, our language is not able, our language is not able to describe accurately and fully what it is that we're even going to see here in John chapter 5. J.C. Ryle calls this one of the most profound and deepest texts in all of the Bible. And so our human language is not able to even describe it. To quote J.C. Riley, he says, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of His own unity with the Father, His divine commission and authority, and the proofs of His Messiahship as we find in this discourse. To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. Now, to have an intellect like J.C. Ryle say, this is one of the deepest things in all of the Bible, you know that we are about to jump into some very deep waters. Ryle goes on to say, there are a few chapters in the Bible, perhaps, where we feel our own shallowness of understanding so thoroughly and discover so completely the insufficiency of all human language to express the deep things of God. Men are often saying that they want explanations of the mysteries of the Christian faith, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the person of Christ, and the like. Let them just observe, when we do find a passage full of explanatory statements on a deep subject, how much there is that we have no line to fathom and no mind to take in. I want more light, says the proud man. 
God gives him his desire in this chapter, and he lifts up the veil a little. But behold, we are dazzled at the very light we wanted, and we have not eyes to take it in. End quote. That's what John 5 is. I'm telling you that at the beginning because there are going to be times when I'm just, I'm going to have to say to you, and I'm going to do this later today, I can't go beyond this. I can just make this one statement, but we can't go beyond that. Because what we get in John 5 is we get to open up the veil, as it were, and gaze upon the nature and the being of God. And we find that the minute the veil is lifted up and we begin to gaze upon some of these deep things, that immediately we do not have eyes to take in that light. We do not even have a mind that is able to comprehend what it is that we see when we get a glimpse beyond the veil. So eventually we just have to stop and say, I will take this by faith. You remember John chapter 4, what we saw over and over again about the word of Jesus? Remember that? The Samaritans believed his word. They took him at his word. Those who believed and were saved, they just believed the word of Jesus. It was the word of Jesus, which was the central point of John chapter 4. These people were saved because they believed. They took Jesus at his word and they said, if he says it, it is enough for me. I want you to take that thought, which kind of we were prepared for John chapter 5 and John chapter 4. When we move into John chapter 5, we just have to simply say, our Lord has said it, that is enough. I'm going to take him at his word. These things are true. He is who he claims to be. So John chapter 5, verse 19. This comes about as a result of the persecution. They were persecuting him. Look at verse 18, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore the Jews answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Now at one and the same time, verses 18 and 19, are a Jehovah's Witness's best friend and worst enemy. Now here's why. I've taken a Jehovah's Witness to verse 18. Why is it that the Jews were persecuting Jesus? Because he was breaking the Sabbath, according to their standards, and he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now you think for somebody who denies the deity of Christ, verse 18 would be a great verse to take a Jehovah's Witness to. And it's true. Verse 18, the Jehovah's Witness will read that, and it reads this nearly the same in their Bible as it does in ours. It's very similar to the essence of it. And then a Jehovah's Witness will very quickly say, but... Verse 18 does not mean that Jesus was actually claiming equality with God. What verse 18 means is that the Jews who heard Jesus say the statement in verse 17, they misunderstood him to be claiming equality with God, and that is why they were persecuting him. It was because they misunderstood his statement and thought he was claiming equality with God, which he was not, that they were persecuting him. So verse 18, to a Jehovah's Witness, records the Jewish misunderstanding of Jesus' claim Recorded in verse 17. You follow me so far? There's only one problem with that. It's not what the text says, is it? What does the text say? The text says, for this reason the Jews were persecuting him because he was violating the Sabbath. And what? And John tells us, Jesus was claiming that God was his Father, thus making himself equal with God. Verse 18 is not a record of the Jews' misunderstanding of Jesus. John 18 is a record, John's record, of why it is the Jews were persecuting Jesus. He's not recording what the Jews said. He's recording, John's recording what he's saying. He is telling us, believers, the reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus is because he was claiming God was his Father, and John is telling us Jesus was making himself equal with God. What does John chapter 5 verse 18 say? John chapter 5 verse 18 says Jesus was making himself equal with God. It doesn't record the Jewish misunderstanding. It records John's explanation of the persecution that was coming Jesus' way. Why were they persecuting him? They understood exactly what he was claiming. And here's what John is telling us. John is saying, Jesus claimed equality with God. That's why the Jews were persecuting him. Now, is John 
Did John misunderstand Jesus' statement? Did Jesus misunderstand how the Jews would take his statement? Not at all. Jesus fully understood exactly what the Jews would do with his statement. He fully understood exactly how they would take it. And they understood exactly what he was saying. He was saying he was equal with God. Therefore, they persecuted him. Therefore, they persecuted him. So now verse 19. Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Now listen. If the Jews misunderstood Jesus' statement in verse 17, and if the Jews thought Jesus was claiming equality with God, but while he wasn't really claiming equality with God, and if Jesus understood that they had misunderstood him, thinking he was claiming equality with God when he really wasn't. In other words, if Jesus was a mere man, and he knew the Jews are persecuting me because they have misunderstood what I'm saying, Jesus would have been obligated morally, spiritually, in every way, to immediately clear up all doubt and say to the Jews, no, 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 hold on. You have misunderstood exactly what I have said. What I intended to say was this. You thought I meant this. It's not that. It's this. But do you notice Jesus doesn't do that? Instead, he, verse 19, he takes it to a whole new level. And he takes the claim of verse 17 and their understanding of his claim, that he was claiming equality with God. And he unfolds that in verse 19. And he introduces it with this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you. We've seen that other times in the Gospel of John. Every time it's used in the Gospel of John, it's used by Jesus. And every time it's used in the Gospel of John, it's used by Jesus to introduce a very solemn, very serious claim or truth. Something where Jesus is essentially saying, I want you to listen to this. Now pay attention to this, because this is key. Listen up. Everybody, all eyes up here, listen. What I'm about to tell you is the absolute truth. And you cannot get this wrong. That's what Jesus was saying. You thought I was going to tell you something there, didn't you? But I'm just, I'm just illustrating to you exactly what that phrase. Verily, verily, truly, truly, truthfully, truthfully, amen, amen. Listen, listen. What I am telling you is serious and it is true. Don't get this wrong. I'm going to clarify something for you. Son can do nothing of himself. Now see, while verse 18 is the Jehovah's Witnesses' worst nightmare, verse 19 seems to be their best friend, doesn't it? The Son can do nothing of Himself. If Jesus was claiming equality with God, He would never say that I, the Son, can do nothing of my own initiative apart from the Father. The ESV says the Son can do nothing of His own accord. The NIV, I think, says the Son can do nothing by Himself. In the sense, seems to be the ESV sense, the Son can do nothing of His own accord or by Himself. So they would say if God can do anything, and He can, we would all agree with that, God can do anything, Actually, to be theologically accurate, we'd have to say God can do anything that God can do. There are certain things that God cannot do, right? God cannot lie. God cannot deny himself. God cannot break his promises. There are things which God cannot do. But deity can do anything that omnipotence can do anything that it is possible for omnipotence to do. So if Jesus is omnipotent, if he has all power and he is almighty and he can do anything, then you would never expect the son to say, I can do nothing of my own initiative. I can do nothing by myself or of my own accord. So if the Son were God, Jehovah's Witness would say, if the Son were God, if Jesus were God in human flesh, He would never say that I can do nothing apart from the Father because that's an expression of weakness and limitation. It is an expression of want of power, lack of power, to say that He can do nothing of His own accord by Himself unless it's something that He sees the Father doing. You and I would be able to say the same thing, would we not, in a sense, to be able to say, look, I can't do anything of myself. Without Jesus, I can do nothing. Is that a true statement or a correct statement? It is a true statement. I can do nothing. I can't breathe on my own. I can't get saved on my own. 
I can't make a decision on my own. Unless he, or to, unless he is to sustain me and guide me and give me the strength and the power and to sustain my every heartbeat and my other, every breath, I literally can do nothing except by the grace and the gift of God. True statement. If Jesus were the Son, if he were God, how is it then that he can say, I can do nothing of myself? Job's witness loves that verse. So the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says, I can do nothing of myself? At first glance, because of how we use language, it seems as if what Jesus is doing is denying omnipotence. But here is, in fact, what Jesus is doing. That statement is itself a claim to omnipotence. And here's how. Jesus is saying, I can do nothing apart from the Father. That is not a statement of a lack of power. It is Jesus saying, all of the power that I possess and use is the Father's power. And I don't exercise any power, any power that is not His, that is not God's. So Jesus is saying, all that I do is the work of God, and I don't do anything that God doesn't do. And all that God does, I do, and I don't act independent from God. So everything you see me do is itself the work of God. And I don't act independent from the Father in that. Rather, all that the Father does, I do. All that God does, I do. And everything I do can truly be said to be the work of whom? The work of God. Friends, it's not a statement of weakness. It's not Jesus saying, oh, I'm weak. I am impotent. I am powerless. I am without ability, and I can't do anything unless the Father strengthens me. It is Jesus saying, all of the power that I possess, I use in full cooperation with the Father. And all that I do is done by the Father, and I do nothing apart from the Father. Now listen, if the Son of God were to become manifest in human flesh, if God were to take upon Himself human flesh, and dwell among us, the second person of the Trinity, If Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, what would you expect Him to say? Would you expect Him to say, all of the power that I do, I do on my own, without regard to God, without the Father, without the Spirit, without any consideration. I'm doing my own thing. i got my own agenda. I call my own shots. I am my own boss. I do my own thing. I'm almighty, and it doesn't matter to me what the Father and the Spirit say. Would you expect that from the Son of God? If God the Son were to become incarnate, you know what we would expect Him to say? We would expect Him to say, everything I do is the work of God, and I do nothing on my own. Because everything I do, every action I take, is God's action. Here's the marvelous thing about the Trinity. To behold Christ act is to behold God acting. To see Christ do something is to see God doing it. In every sense of the word. To look at Him, to gaze upon Him, is to behold the very nature of God. And to see Jesus do something is to see God do it. Turn over to John chapter 14 real quick, just for a parallel package passage. John 14, verse 7, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you know Him and have seen Him. When did they see the Father? Verse 8, now Philip, who was standing there listening to this, if you'd known me, you would, you've seen the Father. Philip must have said, well, was I not there that day? Right? Did I miss something? I've never seen the Father. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And that would be enough for us. Give us a glimpse of the Father. 
then it would be sufficient. That would be enough. If we could just behold, if we could just look, open up the heavens, by a command, open up the heavens, and let us see the being and the nature and the essence of God. Let us behold the Father's face. Verse 8, or verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? How is it you can spend three years with me and not yet know who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, if Jesus and the Father are not the same person, how is it that Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? How is it Jesus could say that? Philip, Philip says, show me the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus could say that not because the Father and the Son are the same person, but listen, because the Father and the Son are of the same essence, the same nature, the same substance. They are both God. To behold and look on Christ is to behold and look on all that is God. Not part of God, but all that is God. Look at the rest of verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Two things there. Jesus says, all the words that I speak, I do not speak on my own. What is he saying? Same thing as back in John chapter 5. Turn back to John chapter 5. He's saying the same thing. All the words that I speak are God's words. Everything I say is God's word. And then he says, the Father is in me doing the works. Believe me, Philip, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you have seen me work, you have seen the Father work. Why? Because Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. So we would expect if the Son were to come into the world that the Son would not say, look, I do whatever I want whenever I want without regard to the other persons of the Trinity. We would expect the Son to say exactly what we see Him say in John chapter 5. Everything I do, I do in submission to and in obedience to and in coordination with the Father. We should never think of the Trinity as, and we did this in Sunday school, as three persons. The Father over here doing His own thing, not really caring what the Son and the Spirit are doing. And then the Spirit over here doing His own thing, really not paying attention to the other two. And the Son over here doing His own thing, each of them sort of running off in their own directions, trying to accomplish their own agenda. No, there is a perfect coordination of will and purpose and power and intention and design and plan among the persons of the Trinity. God cannot deny Himself. And if Jesus had said, I do everything I do by my own power, by myself, on my own timetable, my own agenda, that would be God denying Himself. God can't deny Himself. So Jesus would say, look, everything I do is one in purpose and union and power and plan with the Father. What the Father has planned, the Son has executed, and the Spirit of God is bringing to pass. All three persons in their own works and in their own distinct workings within the Godhead are accomplishing everything that God wants to accomplish. And the intention and plan of the Father is identical to the intention and the plan of the Son, And the intention and the plan of the Son is identical to the intention and plan of the Spirit in all of their works. So that in all of salvation, whether it is election, regeneration, adoption, sanctification, glorification, whatever the work of salvation is at any point from first to last, we can say it is all entirely of God. So if the Son has died on the cross, God did in reality die on the cross and pay the purchase price for the church with His own blood. The Father didn't, but God did in the person of the Son. And God sanctifies us in the Spirit. And the Father, God, elects us in salvation. All of it is the work of God. So when Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself, He is not describing His weakness. He is describing His will. Everything that I do, I will to do in complete coordination with the Father. It is a claim to omnipotence, to work the Father's works. That is what He's saying. 
You see that at the end of verse 19. The end of verse 19, he says, Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. What does the Son do? Whatever the Father does. What does the Father do? He creates. Did the Son create? Yeah, He did. Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, the Son created, didn't He? Does the Father sanctify us? Yeah, the Father's work. God is working in sanctification. He is sanctifying us through the person of the Spirit. The Spirit is involved in that. Does God uphold all things by the word of His power? The Son does that. Does God exercise in a providence and care for all of His creatures? The Son does that. Everything that you and I can say God does, the Son does. The Son does because the Son is the very essence and nature of God, doing all that God does Himself. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does. You see the Son work. You have seen God work. You have seen the Father working in the Son. Because this describes the union and the oneness that exists between the members of the Trinity. Now the next phrase of verse 19, goes start slow at the beginning, but trust me, we're going to speed up. The second phrase of verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. Now what does that mean? How is it that the Son sees the Father doing and then does it? What does that describe? Does the Father have to pull the second person of the Trinity aside and say, Son, look, here is what you need to be doing. And then the Son says, Oh, I didn't know. I'll do this instead. I've changed my plans. And then every once in a while the Father has to say, uh, Son, over here, you should be doing this. This is what I want done. Is that how it works? In what sense and in what way do we say that the Son sees the Father working and then does those things however the Father does in like manner? This is where language fails us. I told you I was going to have this as an out all the way through John 5, right? This is where language simply fails us. It is true that, and this is all the further I can go, It is true that amongst the members of the triune Godhead, the Father reveals, shows to the Son the works, His works, and the Son in perfect obedience does those works. Now the Son has at no time and in no way ever learned anything. And nothing... How can I describe this? I can't describe it. Here's the point. Let me let me throw this out here, and this is not intended to be heresy. The son reveals his will to the father. Uh, sorry, the father reveals his will to the son, and the son has always known and always done the will of the father. Beyond that, we can't go. It's as far as we can go. The father shows the son. The son does it, but the son has never learned it. The son has always known it. Just like this father generates the son, but the son has never had a time when he was not generated by the father. It's always been that way. This is the language of subordination. It's different than subordinationism. Subordinationism is the doctrine that one of the members of the Trinity is unequal or lower or lesser than the other members of the Trinity. This is the doctrine of subordination within the Godhead. This is marvelous. Within the Godhead, amongst the three equal persons, the son has always been subordinate to, in submission to, the will of the Father. It has always been that way. There was never a time and there never will be a time when the Son is not in submission to the Father. And the Spirit is always submitted to the Father and the Son. They are, the Son takes a lower role, a lower role in relation to the other member of the Trinity, the Father. But He is not lesser in nature. 
He is equal. Just like my wife is equal to me in being. She's a human being. I am a human being. But she submits to me. It doesn't make her lesser of a person. It makes her role less than mine. That's biblical. The model for submission in the home is the same as the model of submission in the Trinity. The Son submits and does the will always and fully and constantly of the Father. And the Father reveals that to the Son. The Son has always known it. And the Son has always done it. And it has always been that way. And the Spirit is always proceeding from and glorifying the Father and the Son and, and magnifying them and in submission to the will of the Father and the Son as well. And it has always been that way. Now, that's the part we can't go past. So this intimacy of persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would speak of an intimacy of love within the being of the the triune God. And that's exactly what we find in verse 20. The Father loves the Son. And because the Father loves the Son, He shows Him, that is, the Father shows the Son. Here's the limitations of language again. The Father shows the Son all that He does. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Interestingly, the word for love there, the Father loves the Son, this is the only place in all of the New Testament where the the Greek word for love, phileo, is used of the Father of the Son. Other places, the word agape is used. That the Father agapes or loves the Son. And it's that divine love, that sacrificial love. But here the word phileo, and this is the only place in all of the Bible where this type of love is said to emanate from the Father to the Son. Phileo love is an affectionate love. It is that heart, that feeling of love. It is that warm affection that a father has for his son. That's what's being described. What exists among the persons of the Trinity is this warm affection. This love that you and I cannot even fathom. The depth of it. The eternality of it. And it has always been that way. What did God do before He created the universe? You know what He did? The Father loved the Son and the Spirit. And the Son loved the Spirit and the Father. And the Spirit loved the Father and the Son. There was intertrinitarian dialogue, intertrinitarian communion, intertrinitarian uh, intimacy there. There no, never was a time when God was alone. Never. God always had Himself. And the three persons could have a conversation and relate and commune with one another, and they did that for all of eternity. Does that blow your mind? And if you think it's hard to fathom how it is that God can be one being in three persons, try wrapping your head around the love that must exist just among the persons of the Trinity. Which, by the way, do you know why the Father loves you and He loves me? I will tell you this. It's not because you're lovable. And it's not because I'm lovable. You know why it is? The Father loves me solely because I am in His Son. That's why it is. And because I am in His Son, the love that the Father has for the Son, He has for me. Wow. You thought it was because you were lovable. You thought it was because you were good looking. You thought it was because you were smart. You thought it was because you made a right decision at some point in your life. It wasn't. It was because from eternity past, when the Father gave a people to the Son, those people were in His Son. And He loves us because we are in His Son. He sees His Son in us and us in His Son. And so He can love the unlovable. He can call the vile clean. That and that is the only reason He loves us. The Father loves the Son. And again, here's the limitations of language. He shows the Son all the things that He will do. And greater things the Father will show the Son. What are the greater things? We don't have to wait. and Our imagination doesn't have to try and go, run off onto a rabbit trail now and say, well, what are these greater things that the Father is going to show to the Son? Because the context describes it. Verse 21. What is the greater thing? The resurrection of all people. 
Just as the Father has life in Himself, so He has given to the Son to have life in Himself, and the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. And then verses 25 through verse 29 and 30 describe the ultimate resurrection of the just and the unjust, and Lord willing, and by God's providence, and hopefully a lot of my planning and, and work, what we're going to be doing is fleshing out all of the resurrection doctrine around Resurrection Sunday of this year. We're going to be in verses 25 through 29 talking about this ultimate resurrection. What is the greater work that the Father has for the Son? Eventually, this is marvelous, eventually the Son is going to say the word and all of the dead will come forth. The resurrection of the just and the unjust. And He will raise all men who have ever lived. And then verse 22, He will judge them. The Father doesn't even judge anybody. All judgment has been committed to the Son. What are the greater works? Listen, Jesus is saying to the unbelievers who were persecuting Him. You think healing a man at the pool of Bethesda is a great work? You think that demonstrates my divine power? You wait and see what the Father has in store for the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And there is going to come a day when the Son will raise all men to life and judge all men. You think it's something to raise a crippled man from a position of paralysis? Wait till you see me raise all men from the dead and judge them. Now, do you think Jesus is backing down from his claims to deity, this passage? You think that you're a fool. What they understood him to say in verse 17, the Father's been working and I myself do the works of the Father. Hey, 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 hey. That's equality with God you're claiming. Jesus says in verse 19, listen, listen, I'm going to tell you something. You rightly understand that I'm claiming equality with God. I can do nothing of my own initiative. All that I do is the work of God. Every last bit of it. And I don't do anything on my own. The only things that I do are the work of God. And if you think that's something, you think what I've done is something, you think this offends you, wait until you stand before me after I raise you from the dead and judge you for all of eternity. Those are somber and stilling words. Yet, friends, that is our God. That is the Divine Son. He is the one who has authority over life and over death and over the eternal destiny of all men. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have sent Your Son to be the judge of the living and the dead and that all judgment is committed into His hands. We thank You that the purpose of our Father is the same as the purpose of the Son and the Spirit and that You work together for our salvation and our redemption and there is no doubt in our minds and there is no worry in our hearts that we might be lost by one of the members of the Trinity. For all that You have given to Your Son, You will keep until the day of redemption. And you will raise us up on that last day and you will present us as a bride, spotless and faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. We thank you that our salvation is not the work of any one person of the Trinity, but all three. Our great and blessed God, you are great beyond our imagination and beyond our comprehension. And language not only fails to describe you, but it also fails to give you the praise which you are so rightly due. We thank you for these wonderful and marvelous truths. And we thank you for the Son in whose love we reside. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.